0: Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. God has given to us, through His divine power, everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we are so thankful for the way in which you watch over us and the way you provide for us, and Father, I'm thankful that uh, Herman is doing so much better, and even though he is probably looking at the final uh, days, months, or years in his life and limitations, and that's so difficult, uh, right now we have pa- several pastors who, because of physical limitations due to... Uh, various different uh, diseases are unable to really function as a pastor teacher anymore and have been, as it were, uh, brought back to the bench. But yet they still have some ministry that they can do. And so, Father, we are thankful for that. And, uh, Father, we just pray for Judith and strength for her as she goes through this time. Father, we thank you for your word because it is your word that is the foundation of our lives. It is your word that is the rock upon which we are building our lives because it is faithful, faithful and true and steadfast. And Father, we're thankful for our Savior who has paid the penalty for sin and whose death is absolutely sufficient for our salvation. And now, Father, as we study today, we are reminded that now that we are in Christ, new creatures in Christ, that we are to live accordingly. Uh, not to gain your favor, but in gratitude for all you have done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every day you and I get angry. Sometimes we hold it in. Sometimes we express it verbally. Sometimes we express it physically. But there's not one of us that doesn't have challenges with anger, especially if you drive down the freeways or try to negotiate the parking lots in Houston. But we all know what what that's like, but everybody has different challenges in different, different situations. We get angry with our own selves because we make mistakes, we forget things, we know that we have said something, and that anger about our own failures often turns to some kind of remorse and guilt. We get uh, irritated by interruptions. We get exasperated by our circumstances, and we become indignant with people and we become abusive at times it may be not verbally but in terms of actions but sometimes those actions and the verbal comes out but we feel secure behind our clo- closed windows and windshield anger takes a lot of different forms and anger is also a gateway to sin And so when we come together in order to talk about this, we have to remember that it is not simply anger itself, but it is all that is associated with that anger. And so our topic this morning is anger. Do we manage it or do we conquer it? What does the scripture say? Now, that's an important question to ask, and we haven't asked this question in a while, and we all need to be reminded about what's expected of us as believers, because as we've been studying, we have put on the new man, we are a new creature in Christ, and there is a code of conduct related to that. So we have to study some things about anger and what the Scripture says about anger, In this chart, what I'm showing is illustrating, is what I just said, is that anger is a gateway to other sins. It doesn't usually act alone. It acts in concert with a web of other sins, jealousy, resentment, bitterness. Those are emotional sins or mental attitude sins that often accompany anger. Nobody may see them. They may not see that you're seething with rage because you're good at playing poker, but all of those mental attitude and emotional sins are self-destructive. It also results in sins of the tongue, gossip and slander. There might be verbal abuse, abusive speech. There might be, it might come across as intimidation toward others or in gossip and slander, various forms of innuendo about somebody. And then it can relate phys- outwardly and physically in terms of cruelty. It can result in physical abuse and violence. All of that has its roots in anger as a mental attitude sin. And often we focus on outward manifestations, but the real problem is dealing with anger and what the scripture uh, says about that so the question is how do we break that chain reaction can we is it possible to have a victory over sin of any form but especially anger are we able to have a are we able to conquer it and I want to point out some things related to Scripture as we do this. We developed this out of our study in Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 26 and 27 uh, last time. So I want to lay this as sort of a foundation for what we're going to study in terms of how to deal with anger. First of all and foremost we believe the Bible. We say we do. We have Bible in our title. We are West Houston Bible Church. And so we are proudly stating that we are to be grounded on the Bible. The sad thing is, if you are not aware of this, is that most Bible churches are no longer Bible churches. And that has happened. The the way Bible churches came into existence was through various different paths. But back in the early part of the 20th century, around 100 years ago, uh, there was a battle within the denominations over the inroads of liberalism. Liberalism did not believe that the Bible was inspired by God, that the Bible was infallible or inerrant. And they certainly did not believe that the Bible was sufficient. And so you had Christians who believed in the Bible. They believed in the infallible Word of God. They believed in inerrancy, and they believed in sufficiency. Now, I keep emphasizing that word sufficiency because it is one that is often misunderstood or it's given lip service, but it is the corollary to the belief that the Word of God is breathed, that the Bible is the Word of God that is breathed out by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for uh, correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Now, if you summarize all that, that means the Bible is sufficient. But we have to understand where that means because we are products of a culture that after 150 years of strong human viewpoint thinking have been compromised at the very foundation of our thinking with... uh, Human viewpoint psychology, humanistic psychology, uh, sociology, and a number of other things that shape our thinking, and we're not always aware of how our thinking uh, has been shaped. So the Bible claims to be sufficient. So we look at the verse I quoted the verses I quoted this morning in the opening, that his divine power has given to us some of the things that we need to live a good life. Well, that's what most people hear. But what it says is he's given to us all things, not just a few things, not just related to some areas of life, not just related to getting eternal life and going to heaven when we die, not just related to some aspects of life, which is how most Christians, even most conservatives treat that, but all things. Nothing's left out of all things. God didn't forget anything. He says that everything you and I need to handle and face the challenges, adversities of life, whatever those problems may be, whatever problems we may have because our parents dropped us on our head when we were a kid or because our parents were had this problem or that problem, and so I grew up with these deficits God knew that in his omniscience, so he was able to take care of that and provide that. And so he's given to us all things that pertain to two categories, life and godliness. Now, life and godliness covers everything. Life is our physical life related to how we are to live on a day-to-day basis, encountering all of the problems that we encounter because we live with a bunch of fallen, corrupted sinners, and we're married to a fallen, corrupted sinner, and our children are fallen, corrupted sinners. And so things aren't always what they're supposed to be. In fact, they're rarely what they're supposed to be. And God has given us what we need in order to handle those kinds of situations and circumstances. That's life. Then there's godliness, eusebia in the Greek. And this has to do with our, our spiritual life. Godliness is our, our a relationship to God, our spiritual life, our spiritual growth. And so he's given us everything related to those two categories, that means that without Freud, without psychology, without sociology, uh, without many of the other tools that people use to somehow manage the problems in their life, uh, they are still able to live and to be productive spiritually and to experience the joy, the peace that uh, God has given us, and that is part of the fruit of the Spirit. If you go through the history of Christianity and you take time to read the bibliography, or excuse me, the biographies of a number of Christian leaders or hymn writers or uh, just everyday Christian missionaries and the struggles they face, pick up three or four volumes of uh, stories about missionaries and read what they faced. Uh, going into Africa or India or Asia in the mid-19th century, when the cultures that they faced had no concept of what toilet paper might be used for, and that would be the least of their difficulties and uncomfortable things, uh, you realize that they still had great joy. They had peace and tranquility in their lives, They raised children that were productive and that loved the Lord and that were able to face all of the vicissitudes of life. And they didn't have family counselors, family therapy. They did not have uh, all of the self-help Christian books that we have today that are about 5% biblical on one hand and about 95% based on various forms of humanistic psychology. They just did it with the Bible. That's all they had. And guess what? God proved himself to be sufficient. And they've had all the problems that we have. They may not have had names for them. Uh, They had problems with uh, people who were uh, we would call it today, bipolar or manic-depressive, and there were people who had problems like that. Uh, there were people who had physical maladies. I remember reading about Nicole Robertson, who was the uh, editor of a five-volume series on the exposers' Great New Testament. He didn't get out of bed for years. He was a chain smoker, and he suffered from depression But look at what he accomplished because he trusted in God and was able to uh, deal with life even though he had these other uh, challenges uh, facing him. So God's divine power, his omnipotence, has given to us this in the Scripture. It is through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So if you want to solve problems in your life, you have to get to know God. You don't get to know God through some kind of quiet self-examination and meditation. You get to know God by studying His Word and being taught His Word by someone who firmly believes in the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. So it is through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Those two words really summarize the essence of God all that he is, by which, that is, by which, that is, his character, his essence, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's God's word. Notice in verse 3, it focuses upon God's word, and in verse 4, it focuses on God's word. Again, it always comes back to internalizing the Word of God, not just having a passing acquaintance with it. We have to start with basic building blocks, and we do try to do this with our kids in prep school. They learn songs for the names of the New Testament, songs for the names of the Old Testament. Often I think that we ought to have a, I wish we had enough people and enough time to have an adult Sunday school class. And I would have two. I would have those for who, those who were believers for a while and those who are relatively new believers, and we would teach them those children songs because there are a lot of adults that don't know and never had the privilege of going to a Christian camp or going to vacation Bible school and just learning these songs so they could figure out uh, the difference between uh, Jeremiah and Romans and have sword drills. How many of you all have ever done a sword drill? Good. That's great. sword drill, for those of you who've never done one, is that you call out. We used to do it at the camp I went to. We would have things like a fruit. Okay, so the verses are all going to have the name of a fruit in there, and you have to find the verse and find the fruit. So you have to be able to find find your way around the Bible and then read quickly. And so they would call out the reference. You had to hold your Bible up in the air. And they would call out the reference, but you couldn't go right away until they said charge. And then you'd grab your Bible, pull it down, open it up, go to the verse, and read it very rapidly and stand up and yell apple, okay, or pomegranate, whatever it was. So you had to know your fruits also. But that's a lot of fun. But you really learn to physically handle the Word of God. And you know that'd be great to do that with with adults at Sunday morning worship sometime. But I don't think that too many people might think, well, you're just treating us like kids. I remember when when I went to Dallas Seminary up until you know sort of the the, the neo theologians got there and started controlling things. The uh, baby boomers, we had to wear a coat and tie to class. And that was back in a time in the 70s when if you were wearing a coat and tie, you were wearing a vest. So you had a three-piece suit on nearly every day. And so I was in a class that made up about, oh, there were probably 100 people in that class because you, you basically just had two sections of your whole class and there were about 200 in the class. And one of my professors I did my doctoral work under later stood up and said, We're going to stand up, men, and we're going to sing, I will never march in the infantry. And we're going to do all of the motions. And there's nothing like hearing, back then we didn't have women in seminary, hearing a hundred male voices singing in harmony, because a lot of those guys were great singers, I will never march, I may never march in the infantry and going through all of the motions. That was great fun. And we ought to have a little fun every now and then. But anyway, we have to make the Word of God our priority, and we have to really know the Word of God. And this is what the sufficiency of Scripture talks about. We're not trying to understand what's going on in the life of the apostle through the grid of some Christian psychology. There are several hundred different models of human behavior that have come out of psychology did you know that so you go pick a counselor that counselor has been trained in one of those models none of which are necessarily biblical because to have a model of human behavior you have to understand sin you have to have a good view of a biblical anthropology you have to know the makeup of man as body soul and spirit you have to understand the dynamics of sin, the dynamics of salvation, and the dynamics of the spiritual life. And I don't think there's, there's less than a millionth of one percent that probably understand that who are hanging out a counseling shingle. Then you have, those are the models of behavior. Then you have therapies. Now, there's probably four or five times as many therapies as there are models of human behavior. And if you're going to go to someone for counseling, then you have to ask all those questions, and they don't want to answer all those questions, and you probably don't know all the questions that you ought to be answering. So you're just basically uh, playing roulette with your spiritual life by going to a counselor because his advice, his methodology, is all going to be shaped by his view of what makes a human being a human being, what the spiritual life is, what the role of sin is in the problems and the way they're responding to the problems in their life. No Christian from the time of the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 up until the mid-1800s had anything to solve their problems with, with the Bible. And they had joy and peace and stability and They were happy, and they loved the Lord, and they grew in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the important thing. If you're going to handle anger, you've got to understand it biblically and understand yourself biblically. Second thing is we're to be involved in spiritual transformation, not psychological transformation. And that's extremely different. And most of you out here have grown up in what... Um, Bruce Shelley identified as the um, as the therapeutic age. When you have a historian, they periodize things. So you have modernism and postmodernism, and, and when he wrote his book on um, on church history, uh, the, uh, in plain language. Uh, He wrote that in the early 80s, maybe 1980 or 1981, and the term postmodern really wasn't used much at that time. And so the way he periodized the post-World War II period was the therapeutic age. So we grew up being taught that psychology has the answers. But the Bible says, no, it doesn't. And too many Christians have been sucked into this. And too many pastors have been sucked into this. They did a survey at Dallas Seminary in the early '70s and said, uh, "What was your what benefited you the most in seminary, and what benefited you the least?" And what they said was theology and the languages benefited me the least, and I didn't get any teaching on how to help people with their problems. So they started adding counseling and pastoral counseling, things like that, to the to the um, Curriculum. We don't do that at Chafer Seminary, by the way. Romans 12.2, I think, is, is is the benchmark passage, the summation of what the ministry is all about and what the Christian life is all about. The way it is translated in the New King James is the one that's familiar to people. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove... What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Now we get lost in some of that verbiage. And I've sort of paraphrased and translated it this way. Do not be pressed into the mold of your culture's values and methodology. And I put methodology in there because a lot of people think methodology is neutral. But the Bible says methodology comes out of your, your worldview, your presuppositions. So there's nothing neutral anywhere in any culture or any life it's either god's way or it's man's way that's how the bible presents it so don't be pressed into the mold of your culture's values and methodology but be transformed by the total renovation of how that's methodology and what that's content you have to transform how you think and what you think that your life will be evidence it's a legal term Evidence that the will of God, that is what he says in the Bible, not what you think he says, not what you feel like he says, but what he says in the Bible is good and acceptable and the word is perfect, but it really means complete. I meant to put perfect in parentheses there. It's good and acceptable and complete. That's what the word teleon means there, that's translated perfect. It, per, perfect has the idea of flawlessness. It is that. But what it's talking about is the sufficiency of Scripture. It's complete. You don't need to go somewhere else to find the missing parts because God didn't leave anything out that was necessary. So we have to deal with the world system, that verse says. We're not to be pressed into the mold. It's translated world, but it's a Greek word that indicates more the spirit of the age. It's Ionas, it's the spirit of the age and every age, it's the world view that surrounds us that's part of our culture. The world system, the spirit of the age, which we refer to as human viewpoint, is the way of the flesh, the sin nature. That doesn't mean it doesn't produce morality. Some of the most moral people in all of history were the Pharisees, but they were spiritually dead. So it, the world system is set in direct conflict with the word of God. It's Satan versus God. Some people say you think in terms of black and white. Yes, I do. I'm proud of it. Black is the way of Satan and white is the way of God. That's what the Bible says. We that's our foundation. It's human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint and what's hard is we really are comfortable with divine view I mean with human viewpoint. And we don't like doing the surgery that's necessary to get rid of the human viewpoint, because it's been our friend for a long time. We're comfortable in the human viewpoint skin. And we have to pay attention to that, and the Bible says you've got to get rid of that. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to to man, but its end is the way of death. I remember the first time I read that verse, because I, growing up, I'd never read the Bible all the way through, and I probably had read a lot of Proverbs, but not all of it. I was probably my last year of college, and I was trying to read the Bible all the way through, and I read that. And I went, that is powerful. There's a way that seems right to man. That is, all the opinions, some of the opinions you and I hold, and all the opinions of our unsaved friends hold, is the path of death. Proverbs says there's two paths You're either on the path of life or on the path of death, one or the other. And the death there isn't spiritual death. In some passages, it's a way of physical death. In other passages, it's the way of of just living a spiritually death-like existence because you're not walking by the Spirit, and so your life is a life of dead works, and it's not uh, spiritually profitable. There's a way that seems right to a man, human viewpoint opinion, is the way of death. Proverbs fourteen twenty seven says, "The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, to turn one away from the snares of death." Contrast is always life and death, there, and the the way of life is God's way. Proverbs sixteen twenty five repeats Proverbs fourteen twelve. When the Holy Spirit repeats himself in a verse, because he has an economy of language, he's very careful. But when he repeats himself, it's worth noting. Twice this is in the book of Proverbs, that the way there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. So what we learn from all of this, examining God's word, is that God's way is not man's way. It's not what's going to be socially acceptable, especially in a woke wokeist culture especially in a socialist culture, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be comfortable in some forms of a capitalist culture, which is often motivated by greed, which Paul says is idolatry. But as it's been attributed to Winston Churchill, and that is that capitalism is just a terrible system, but it's better than anything else. Because elements of it are built on more elements of it are built on biblical truth than than others. So we have passages like Romans 12. You might want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 12 because I want to point out a couple of things. We've already looked at Romans 12 too, and when we get down towards the end, from verse 16 on, what it's really doing, what Paul's really doing there is he's been developing through the whole chapter some principles and guidelines for carrying out verse 2, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of, your, uh, renewing of your mind. It's about thinking. It's not renewing your emotions. Emotions are not a criteria for a Bible-believing and Bible-applying Christian. Emotions are the criteria for postmodern subjectivists who live on the basis of their feelings, because they can't know objective truth. They've rejected objective truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There's only one truth, and that's God's truth. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He is the truth. He is the physical incarnation of, of truth. So in 1216... Paul says we're to be of the same mind toward one another. Sounds very familiar to what he has said in the earlier parts of it, the chapter we're studying in Ephesians 4. We are to have a, a unity. Uh, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. That is, don't be arrogant. Don't lift yourself up. Don't be focused on yourself. This is the problem with the postmodern worldview of our culture is that it's all about me. So everything has to lift me up. Everything has to make me feel important. Everything has to make me feel like I worshiped God. Well, that's just self-centered arrogance. And it changes the way you worship, which has affected so many churches today that nobody in the church really understands the Bible or tries to apply the Bible. They're just trying to apply what I call a pop Christianity that has a lot of the same words but denies the power thereof. So we're to be of the same mind toward one another uh, and uh, not put our mind on high things, but associate with the humble. And then Paul says, do not be wise in your own opinion. And then he says, repay no one evil for evil. Now remember that chart when I was connecting anger to a lot of sins? Part of the sins that you relate to are retaliation, vengeance. What does the scripture say? You've got to get rid of that. I don't care. God doesn't care. What happened to your parents? What happened to your grandparents? What they did to you? None of that matters because when we dwell on that, we're going to be bitter. We're going to be angry. We're going to want to retaliate. We want some kind of payback or vengeance. And The Scripture says that's not how the person who is a new creature in Christ is supposed to think or act. We are to repay no one evil for evil. We're to have regard for good things in the sight of all men, even those who hate you, even those who have done bad things to you. You know, we are to have regard for good things. It's up to the Supreme Court of Heaven to deal with perceived, and I say perceived, sometimes they're real, Perceived injustices. We have to put it in the Lord's hands. Verse 18, Paul says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as it depends on you, your rule, it doesn't matter what they do. What matters is what we think and what we do. And we are to, to all degree, live peaceably with all men, even those that hate and despise us, even those who want to cancel us, uh, we have to live at peace with all men. That's the role of the believer. Well, let me see here. I'm missing something. Went, oh there we go. So still under the same principle that God's way is not our way. Romans twelve: nineteen says, "Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. So vengeance and retaliation is completely out of order for the believer. We have to put it in the Lord's hands. Uh, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. What does that mean to give place to wrath? It means to let God take care of it. Let God's wrath come on that person, not your wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So let the Lord take care of it. Number one, he's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows all the facts. He knows all the issues. So just put it in his hands and let him take care of it, and he will either now or in eternity. And then then Paul says, verse 20, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I'm not going to deal with that. That would be a whole other message tracing out that idiom. Uh, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That's an important word. It's the word verb nikao, which meant a victory. Someone who is a victor in a race is nike, where we get our word Nike, where the shoes get their brand name from the goddess of, of victory. So what Paul is saying is don't be conquered by evil. Don't let evil reign, and anger is part of that. So we have to not be conquered by by evil but conquer evil we are to have victory would be another way don't let evil have victory over you but have victory over evil with good that is with the that which is scriptural fifth that means that we need to rethink our priorities our priorities reflect our scale of values how you spend your time says more about what your priorities are than if i were to ask you what are your priorities because we do what we think is important. And what we need to do... I had a I had a professor in college who said, you just need to change your priorities to reflect what you actually do. That's lowering things to the base level. If your priorities are biblical, that means you need to change what you're doing so that it fits what you know to be uh, the truth. Now... We need to rethink our priorities. We say the Word of God and our relationship with Him is the most important thing, but does your time management reflect that? I remember sitting down with Randy Price, who will be one of our speakers at the Chafer Conference. He was in his first year at Dallas, and I was thinking about going to Dallas Seminary. And he said, uh, the most important thing you need to learn is time management. Because there's only 24 hours in a day, and you can only do that which is important. And you're, when you're here, what's important is studying and learning everything that you're being taught in your, in your classes. Understanding the languages, and that takes a lot of time. So there are things you're just not going to be able to do for the next four years. A lot of people don't like that. When you get into your life, you have problems. You have kids. They have schedules. You have a spouse They have schedules. You have all kinds of things. But what counts when you die is what you did with the Word of God during your life. God's not going to say, oh, yeah, I know your kids had softball, but guess what? Instead of getting the Word of God into your kids, you made sure they were participating in athletics because that would make a well rounded kid. But a kid who can't handle life's problems on the basis of the Word of God, it doesn't matter how well they hit the ball. It doesn't matter how well they can catch or how well they can block or any of the other things. What matters is that they understand the Word of God. And people get their priorities right, as tough as it is. I've known parents who they'll take their kids to this, that, and the other thing, but they make sure that they're able to either, A, get them to Bible class every night, five nights a week, or to get them watching a video every night get the family together now we only have bible class on tuesday and thursday nights because i recognize the importance of many of those family events and those those pressures so you we have stuff on the internet so you can watch at any time but you need to make sure your kids are learning this and you need to be involved with what your kids are getting in their prep school classes and you need to be uh be learning this and the bible says that Uh, We are to walk circumspectly. How many times in the last part of Ephesians do we hear, this is how you think, live, and talk, your conversation. So he says, you are to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but wise. That goes back to Proverbs. You're either walking like a fool or you're walking like the wise. The fool follows human viewpoint and the opinion of the world around you. The, the, The wise person follows the word of God. So how does a wise person act? He redeems the time. He's got good time management skills so that on Sunday morning, he is alert and fresh and sitting in church to worship the Lord. And we have Bible class on Tuesday night. We have Bible class on Thursday night. And if at all possible, you should be here. Because when it's all said and done, when it all hits the fan, what matters is what you have learned about the Word of God and how you've grown spiritually. And if you have been too busy with work and this and that and the other thing to even take time to listen to a video or to watch it, it I know there are people, we all have different schedules. And I know there are people who, uh, because of work, they just can't get here, but they can watch. I know a lot of you do that. You don't miss a Bible class but I don't see you very often. But that's okay, because what matters is that you get the Word and that you grow, and that you have the discipline to do that. I know other people who wish they had the discipline to do that, but they never quite get around to it, because by the end of the day, they're too tired. I learned that I was a morning person after I went to seminary. I didn't quite catch it while I was in seminary, but I never stayed up past 10.30 studying for anything, because I don't think well after about 7 o'clock at night. Think about that. I teach Bible class from 7.30 to 8.30, so I am a morning person. I can get done between 5 a.m. and 9 a.m., ten times what I can get done between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. So that's why I get up about 5.15 every Sunday morning to get ready. So we have to redeem the time. Sixth. Therefore, to renew the mind, to reshape your soul, to develop the internal framework for dealing with anger or sin, the Bible has to be a priority in your life. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's more powerful than anything in your life, any education you've had. It is the Word of God that changes people because it's God who changes us. We can't pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. And it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible does the counseling. The Bible te- But if you don't show up in Bible class until you have a problem, well, it's a little too late now, isn't it? You, you are building the reserves in your soul to handle whatever may come in 10 years. And let me tell you, when you get up past about 60, the level of health problems and distractions and everything else that I see come into some people's lives... The only thing that allows them to handle it is the Word of God that they've internalized in, in, in their soul. But the Word of God, it, is, it used to be from the time that the church started until you get into the late 19th century, who was the counselor and what tool did he use? The counselor was the pastor, and the tool that he used was the Bible, and people who think, oh, I got a problem, I got a behavioral issue, I got to do this, I got to go find a counselor. Well, there are sometimes we hit situations, and we do need to talk to a pastor, we need to talk to somebody, not some kind of long-term commitment, like I'm going to see you for the, you know, the next six months, and we're going to have an appointment every week, but you have to sit down. But the way to get around that is to start making an appointment with Bible class every week, and over the period of... 10, 15 years, you're going to be amazed at how you're facing and handling the issues of life. But if you don't get serious about the Word of God, then it's not going to happen. And it's too late when the stuff hits the fan. So Hebrews 4.12 tells us that Moses told the children of Israel as they were set to go into the Promised Land, he said, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today. What he's doing is he's calling upon those who live in heaven, the angelic hosts, and those who live on the earth, the human beings. He says, I call upon all of God's sentient creatures as witnesses today that I have set before you life and death. And that's what I'm talking about. What's the difference between life and death? What's your choice? Today you have a choice. Every day you have to make this choice probably 10 times. Am I going to choose the path of life or the path of death? The path of life is what God says and what His Word says and what those priorities are. And the path of death is, is what I... I just have all these things going on. This is what I have to do. And I'm just, you're just reacting wrongly to bad things. So if we're going to handle and apply be angry and do not sin, then that's what we need to do. We need to get into the Word. As a related passage... Colossians 3, 5 through 9 talks about this same issue a little more clearly. It says, first of all, therefore, he's talking to believers, put to death, in other words, separate yourself uh, from these sins, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That's a term for the unbelieving world. And you once yourselves walked when you lived in them. What did Paul say at the beginning of our section in Ephesians 4? Don't walk like Gentiles that you once were. We have to go through a lifestyle shift, and that requires a mental shift. And then he says in verse 8, But now you yourselves are to put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. And it talks about filthy language. It's really... In light of all the emphasis on truth in the context of both passages, it's corrupted communication out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another. That would be corrupted communication, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So Scripture says an angry person stirs up dissension, and a wrathful person is abounding in transgression. It's only the Word of God that's going to make a shift. So this morning's message is an introduction, an introduction to looking at a summary of what God has given to us in terms of spiritual skills so that we can handle anything. And what we see is that the Word of God doesn't leave any doubt, that there is the way of life, there's the way of death. There is God's way and there's man's way. God's way is the path of life. Man's way ends up in death. And so if we're going to face these issues in our lives, then we have to get serious about the Word of God and understanding it and applying it. And that's where it starts. So we're going to come back next week, and we're going to start looking at these spiritual skills. We haven't done this in a while, and there's a lot of new folks here that have never gone through this. Some of you who've been here before, I don't want you to say, oh, I've heard this before because I've got things that you haven't heard before. I've grown spiritually a little bit since then, and I've learned, expanded my knowledge of the Word of God a little bit since then. Uh, they're the same spiritual skills, but we need to be reminded to use them all the time, just like a football player. He, he's gone through basic training maybe for 20 years in his life before he gets into professional football. He's learned how to tackle and how to throw and all kinds of things, but every year he has to go to spring training and summer training so he doesn't use those skills. And that's the same way for us. We have to go back and review these and practice these over and over again. The only way a skill becomes a skill is if you practice it perfectly. You know, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And so we have to work at that because we're fallen, corrupt sinners, and it's easy for us to take the path of least resistance, which is what the sin nature always convinces us of. So we have to focus. And the challenge to you today is, are you going to choose the path of life or the path of death? Every single morning, you have to make that choice. Every single day, you make that choice 10, 15, 20 times. And that's the challenge with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be reminded of, of these responsibilities we have. We have to decide again and again every day whether we are going to walk with you or whether we're going to follow the path of least resistance and, and let the culture influence us, let our friends influence us, let other things influence us, things that press us into the mold of the world but we're to be not to be conformed or pressed into the mold of the world. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That takes energy, it takes time management, it takes focus. Uh, but that's the issue before us. So, Father, I pray that this will be a real challenge to each and every one of us, not to become complacent in our spiritual walk, but to put the focus upon you. And, Father, we pray that as we go through this, that it will help us to all to understand why it takes so much to overcome all of the human viewpoint that's embedded in our soul and that we can remember that our purpose is to serve you and glorify you and if we don't know your word and to know you then that won't happen father we pray for anyone who is listening today anyone here who's never trusted jesus christ as their savior that the scripture makes it very clear there is only one way Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And that is the issue. Jesus Christ, he came to earth. He came to take on humanity so as a man he could go to the cross. As a perfect man without sin, he was qualified to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. He died for us that simply by our trusting in him, we can have everlasting life. The issue is what you believe and what you're trusting in in terms of Jesus Christ who's able to save you. And that's the most important decision you'll ever make. So Father, we thank you for this time in your word and may we be strengthened and encouraged. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.